Hey guys, I hope you're doing great today and I can't wait to bring you the show. But before I do, I just wanna make a quick request. If you're listening to the show and you're getting good value and you're enjoying the content and you feel that it's valuable, if you could just take a second and go and give me a rating and review in whatever platform you listen, whether it be Apple or Google or uh, Spotify, whatever it is, just go and give me a rating and review, that would be very appreciated. All right guys, let's dive in. When you do postcards, I really, really, really like recommend to the point of insisting that you you make that you use variable data, meaning you if you send me a postcard, it should have my name on it, Mike. Hey, Mike or dear Mike, I'm interested in your property at one, two, three Elm Street or whatever property I own. Don't make postcards generic because they'll get thrown away, right? You're listening to the Just Start Real Estate Podcast. If you're serious about your real estate investing business and need real answers, you are in the right place. And now, your host, Mike Simmons. All right, guys, thank you for joining me on the show today. We got another live Q&A replay for you that I think is going to be very beneficial for you. Uh, we talk about cold calling, working with GCs. How do you find wholesalers? How do you find good wholesalers? Where are we hanging out? Where, where can we be found? And we also talked about private money and what it looks like to structure a private money deal. What paperwork do you need? What needs to be signed? How do you make it official? Uh, we talk about all that stuff. So uh, among other things, there's other stuff we talked about too, but that's some of the highlights. And I think it's going to be a good one for you guys. Uh, so I give you my latest Wednesday. We do these on Wednesdays, by the way, guys. Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Uh, Pacific. Uh, you can go to my Facebook page, Just Start Real Estate, and check it out. But I give you my latest Facebook Q&A live coming to you on a Thursday. Okay, we're live. Welcome back. I appreciate it. Thank you for uh, joining me. I had some uh, craziness because I was going to try to do a, a live from a different location in my office, and it didn't work out. So I'm not doing that. Uh, I will do it at another time though, and uh, kind of show you, uh, I've, I've recently moved and I have a new setup kind of uh, around me. Like my, you can see what's behind me, obviously, but I've got uh, a whole other like studio off to the side, um, kind of a man cave studio kind of a thing. So anyways, I was going to show you more of that and I just uh, couldn't get it together in time. I thought I had it and then realized there were some things I forgot and uh, it was going to be time to start. So here I am in my normal location where I can just plug and play. Uh, so we'll see it next time, hopefully. But listen, first of all, happy day before Thanksgiving. Uh, I, I'm really glad you guys are here. I'm glad you tuned in. I appreciate you tuning in. I know there's a lot of family stuff and things going on this time of the year, and it can be pretty crazy, but I plan on continuing to do these lives uh, all the way through the end of the year and then beyond. So I will be here on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern time, 4 p.m. Pacific, and uh, keep asking me the questions because here's what I know. Here's what I've seen over the years. I was, uh, I was, uh, I shouldn't say guilty of this, but I was also someone who did this, and I know a lot of you are going to do it. You're going to get to the end of the year, and it's pretty normal for people to make New Year's resolutions and say, I want to change things. I want to go in a new career direction. I want to, you know, change my finances. I want to achieve financial freedom. I want to achieve uh, freedom of time. And that's normal. It's natural. That's kind of when we think about it as, you know, humans, pretty much, I think across the globe and in, in most countries, we kind of think of the new year as a new start. And what's going to happen is you are going to start thinking 
darn it, I want to get my real estate investing company off the ground. I want to finally do it. And I want to be here to help you do that. I want to be here to answer questions and help you along the way. If you want deeper, deeper answers, like really want to dig in with me and have me dig into you and your business and, and really help you on a deeper level, uh, I can do that for you, but you have to reach out, right? You can go to the best real estate program com the best real estate program.com that's a quick way to get to me and what I have to offer to help you uh, or you can email me at Mike at juststartrealestate.com and we can connect that way and see what I can do for you um, but I do know that a lot of you are going to have these feelings that you want to make changes and so I want to be here for you to do that uh, but you have to reach out you have to ask um, you know I don't think anybody really succeeds all on their own in this world I think most people have a support system they have accountability people, they have mentors, they have coaches, regardless of your industry, regardless of what you're doing. Um, I just think you need help. Everyone does. I did. And the sooner you realize it and ask for help, the faster you can get to your goals. And so that's what I'm hoping to provide for you. Okay, let's dive into our questions for this week and see if we can help some more people. All right. First question, I am looking for advice and recommendation for what works and not when getting into cold calling on your own. What are your thoughts on how to stay organized with leads, contacts, follow-ups, et cetera? Since there are thousands of numbers on my list, I want to be as efficient and effective as possible. What are your thoughts on speed dialers and are there any you can recommend? Okay. So when it comes to staying organized with leads and contacts, you definitely need a CRM. And um, there might be some CRMs out there that incorporate cold calling and power dialers and things like that. Uh, a lot of times when you, when you take a CRM and you try to bolt on all of these additional features, sometimes it makes the whole thing a little bit clunky and, and unreliable. And, and so I, I'm not necessarily a fan of CRM that try to do literally everything because I think it sometimes is a recipe for disaster, most times a recipe for disaster. So when it comes to staying organized with your leads and contacts and follow-ups, 100% you need a CRM. There's a lot of them out there. I've used a lot of them. My company has used a lot of them. None of them are perfect to, in, in my uh, experience. There's flaws in all the CRMs. And I shouldn't even say flaws. There's limitations, right? Where one CRM is really, really strong. Other CRM, CRMs might have a different thing about them that makes them really attractive to certain people. So We've kind of moved around and, and been a little bit guilty of shiny object syndrome when it comes to CRM. We, we always get frustrated with our CRM and then we'll find a CRM that addresses the, the source of our frustration. And then we get over to that one and realize, oh, they have limitations. They have some frustrating things about their, their CRM. So, uh, you know, I think the, the lesson to be learned from all that jumping around with CRMs is that just pick one that works, that gets the job done and just stay with it. That it's not, CRM is usually not the end all be all of your company. It's not gonna make or break you. It certainly can help. It can make things more efficient and more effective. But um, you know, to your point, you just need something that can organize your leads, contacts and follow-ups. That's literally every CRM can do that. Like that's what they do at a baseline. But because there's so many of them, they start to try to add more and more features so they can beat their competition. And then as they add all these features and automations and functionality, sometimes it sort of makes the overall experience a little bit frustrating. So there's CRM out there. Uh, Podio is a very popular CRM. It's pretty basic and pretty user-friendly and it's customizable. You can add on to it. There's 800 
kajillion videos about how to set it up and, and get it ready for your business. So there's a lot of support out there for Podio. Um, we've also used FreedomSoft and our team liked it. It was pretty good. It had some limitations and some things that frustrated us, but we used FreedomSoft for a while. Uh, we, sim- we, we realized, um, or we just recently switched over to RE Simply. That's R-E-S-I-M-P-L-I. Um, we have not even fully transitioned over to that software, but it looks pretty promising. It looks pretty good. A lot of people have said good things about it. So I'm not endorsing it. I don't have, an, I'm not an affiliate or anything like that. I'm just telling you honestly what we're using. Um, you know, Zoho has been around forever. Uh, Investor Fuse has been around forever. We used Investor Fuse for a couple of years and we liked it generally. There was some stuff about it we didn't love, but um, again, I, I, I just can uh, confess to you that I move CRM too often. So those are some examples of CRM that you could try, pick one and, and stick with it. Like just realize it won't be the end all be all. It won't, you know, do every single thing you ever wanted a CRM to do. There'll, there'll be times when you might hit a limitation, but it's not a limitation that's going to stop you from growing and being successful. So pick one and go with it. If I, if you have like no idea at all, and you're like not super into like software and, and stuff, Podio is pretty easy because it's easy and it's simple. And there's a lot of videos out there, a lot of YouTube stuff that you can use to help you set it up. So maybe Podio is a way to go if you don't have any preferences. Um, but as far as power dialers, yeah, I, I think the two that I always hear about and that we have used in our company is Mojo and Zencall. Um, both of those are power dialers that I, I know we've used. And I know a lot of people who are very successful with cold calling also use. And so those would be the two that I would probably recommend over all the other ones. Now, there could be something that got released yesterday or six months ago, or it's going to be released in six months or a year that is going to be the new great one. It's fine. Mojo has been around a long time. Zencall has been around for a while. Both of them are pretty tried and true. And I would, I would be comfortable recommending either one of those to you. Uh, but you definitely want to use a power dialer uh, in order to be efficient. You know, a power dialer, if you guys don't know, it basically calls out multiple numbers at one time. It, it rings multiple numbers. And as soon as one of those numbers, somebody picks up, it drops the other ones and it takes you directly to the one that picked up. So you're not sitting on the phone, waiting for five minutes for someone to answer, hanging up, calling the next number sitting on the phone, waiting for two or three minutes, listening to a, a, a ring, just ringing, ringing, ringing. No one's answering, right? It does it like tons of them at once. And then it just, it connects you with the one that picks up. So it's really, really smart. It's efficient and effective, what you were talking about. Um, but just realize when it comes to cold calling, it, it's very, people can get burned out really, really quickly with cold calling. So if you're going to try to do it yourself and you've never cold called before, you will most likely hate it. It's really, really tough, right? It takes a certain kind of person to be able to do cold calling for hours a day. And I think one of the mistakes people make is they say, I'll do it myself, which is fine. Doing it yourself to understand the process and go through it for a while is fine. But chances are, as the owner of the business, you're not going to be able to do it all day long because there's other things in your business that are maybe even more important than those calls. So, getting someone on board in-house to do those for you or hiring a service is probably the smartest way to go for most people, unless you are a natural born cold caller and that's what you want to do. But even then I would say, don't do it for very long because as the owner of business, that is not the highest and best use of your time. Maybe in the beginning to start generating leads if you're really great at it, but don't also try to like hire you know, like an acquisitions person or a salesperson and say, I'm going to have them doing cold calls because 
the, the profile and the personality type of a salesperson isn't necessarily the prototype of someone or the profile of someone who can do cold calling for hours a day. It's very tedious, very mind numbing, and it takes a certain kind of person. So just make sure that you're not burning people out and bringing them in and, you know, having like their main job is this, but you're going to have cold call for four or five hours a day. They'll end up quitting most likely because they didn't, they didn't come into your company wanting to do cold calls. And if you just sort of assign it to them, like a task that you just sort of give them like after the fact, or like, just, you know, Hey, just do this too. If they don't want a cold call, chances are they're, they're not going to do a good job and they're going to quit because it'll just burn them out. Cold calling is really, really tough to do consistently day in and day out, unless that's just something you're great at and you've done it in the past and you've had success like then. Right. So hire that person or hire a service is my opinion, but Podio or Infusionsoft or Freedomsoft or uh, RE Simply are, are all good CRMs that you could try to. So that's that's what I would suggest to you. Uh, Zach Belknap. <laughs> so his question is, when is your book going to be audio? That's a great question. Um, the short answer is maybe never. Um it's possible. I, I'll tell you, I, uh, I'm going to be interviewing on my podcast uh, pretty soon here, a friend of mine, Bill Allen, who wrote a book this year. And he asked me to um, record the audio. And hopefully, I think I can talk about this. I don't think he's, I think, I think people know now, but um, anyways, hopefully now, hopefully I can. But he asked me to record the audio and I did it. And um, that's a lot harder than I thought it was. It was, it was not easy. It was not like, it was not easy. And it made me wonder if I want to do it for my book or not. That's how much it was. It was work, right? Um, I may do that. I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I, I probably should do it. And you can hear it. I'm sure you can hear my voice. I'm like struggling with the decision because I think I should. And then that part of me says, okay, let's do it. And then the other half of me says, yeah, but I don't really want to do that. I don't want to spend that much time in a studio recording an audiobook, even if it's mine. Uh, and now it's like, you know, sometimes you fear the unknown. It's not unknown for me anymore. I have recorded a full audiobook and I know what's involved in it. And I'm not excited about getting back and doing another one. So we'll see. I, uh, you know, if people ask me, I guess enough, I'll do it. Uh, I don't know that there's a huge demand, but maybe there is, but I don't know. I, we'll see. I guess it'll be a big surprise. If I don't do it soon, I'm probably not going to do it because um, there's a really good chance there's another uh, book coming out in the near future. So uh, I don't want to get that far behind on recording audiobooks. Okay. Uh, next question from Zach. By the way, thanks, Zach. I appreciate that. It makes me realize somebody cares and they're reading or they want to read it, but they don't want to read it. They want to listen to it. And I sympathize with that too, by the way, I tend to listen to audiobooks. I don't read books um, that much anymore just because of how busy I am. So I tend to listen to audiobooks. So I get it. I get why people would want that. Okay. Zach, next question. Is it worth it to put postcards on people's doors for niche lists or just mail them? Yeah. I think it's totally worth it. It's it's not super scalable. Like I can mail out 4,000 postcards in a day, but I can't go and put 4,000 postcards on people's door. Now, you're talking about a niche list, which uh, you know, to me, that means the, the list is much, much smaller. I, I do think that's a good idea. I don't know if I would do it necessarily instead of, putting a of, of mailing the postcard. And in fact, if I'm going to go to their door, I might recommend instead of a postcard 
that you get a sticky note and maybe not the little square ones, you know, the little tiny ones, but like they make bigger ones, like three by five sticky pads. I would probably like have those printed out in a sticky pad format, which is great. Or I don't know how many you're going to do, but if, if it's small enough amount, write them out or have somebody write them out and stick them on the door because people are a lot more likely to go and read a sticky note. If they see like a piece that looks like it belongs in the mail stuck on the door, they might just treat it like garbage. But I know of people who we've done in our company actually use sticky notes and literally go and stick, put a sticky note on the door because that tends to get um, people to read them. So if you're going to go to the effort of going up to the door, maybe have some sticky notes printed out instead of, um, instead of postcards. So, and, and in that case too, I, I think you could probably print the sticky note could be a little more generic, like, Hey, I'm just trying to get a hold of you. Um, give me a call, whatever. Like it doesn't necessarily have, like when you do postcards, I really, really, really like recommend to the point of insisting that you, you make that you use variable data, meaning you, if you send me a postcard, it should have my name on it, Mike, Hey, Mike, or dear Mike, I'm interested in your property at one, two, three Elm street or whatever property I own. Don't make postcards generic because they'll get thrown away. Right. Dear resident, do you have a house for sale? I buy houses. Like those are generic and they tend to not do very well. So you want your postcard that you mail to me to say, Mike, uh, my name is Zach. I'm an investor in your local market. Uh, I know that you have a property at 123 Elm Street. I'd be interested in talking to you about buying it if you're interested in selling it. Like that's how the postcard reads. The sticky note could be, hey, my name is Mike. I'm trying to get a hold of you. I want to talk to you about this property, right? And you could even maybe write it right on the sticky note, this property on 123 Elm Street. Um, please give me a call. It's very important, you know, kind of a thing. That, that's what you put on a sticky note. Um, but it could be just generic. Hey, my name is Mike. I'm trying to get a hold of you about this property. Give me a call at this number. It's urgent or, you know, it's very important or whatever. So yeah, I think going and putting them on the doors can be really, really effective. It's just not scalable. If your list is big, you know, how many, how many of those are you going to do a day and you could pay someone to do it for sure. But again, it's still, still hard to scale. So, um, but I like the idea. I think it's a good idea. So, yep. Uh, Nick, Hey Nick, what's up, man? Uh, is there a CRM that you know that you can send auto texts and email sequences and follow-ups? Um, yeah, I think a lot, a lot of them do nowadays, or they're trying to, um, RE simply does do it. It's, and I just, I happened to watch a demo, uh, me and my partner and our team got on the call with the, with the developer of RE simply like the guy who, who, who's like in charge of, of the code. And, and he gave us a whole demonstration and it does do that. It does send out text messages. It sends out uh, ringless voicemails, um, email sequences. It can do all of that. So um, that's one that I know for sure does. I want to say, I don't know for sure if FreedomSoft does. And Investor Fuse, I know that that's something they were trying to get in their software. They may have done it by now. I don't know. I don't really keep up with that anymore. It's been a couple of years since I've used Investor Fuse, but um, I know RE simply does because I just saw it in action. Like I know it does. So, but I, I, we haven't even totally transferred over, Nick, to be honest. So I'm hesitant to tell you to jump into RE simply. I could give you a much better um, review of it in six months or a year, but we're moving to it. My partner researched it. Um, he's done a lot of legwork trying to understand if it was the right one for us. And we're moving our entire operation to it. So um, to that level, I can endorse it, right? Like we've made the decision to do it. So it was promising enough for us. So, but, but it does do it, it does do all the things you're asking. <clears throat> okay. 
Next question is from Gabriel. Gabriel says, how do you communicate your vision for a flip to the GC of my choice? Um, coming from a big construction background, we have detailed plans dictating finished products, materials. Would one typically just need to give them a list of materials? I want when they bid it out or, I'm sorry, when they bid or hire out an architect based on size. So for typically for flips, for an, a normal flip and a normal flipping business, there's not a lot of architects involved. It's GCs and then they hire their general contractors. I mean, they're, um, they hire their individual contractors for the various trades. Um, the way that you communicate division, a lot of what a lot of flippers do, because, you know, when it comes to flipping, depending on what kind of a business you're trying to build, Gabriel, like if you're trying to flip five, six houses a year, you can get very, very, very detailed and custom and every house can be different and there's nothing wrong with that. But if you're trying to get up to scale flipping houses, right? And I know people personally that flip 200 and more houses a year, right? And when you start getting to that point, <clears throat> you need some standardized uh, materials. Uh, you need to make a list of standardized materials that you use. And a lot of times what people will do, a lot of flippers will do is they'll have like a like entry level, like, you know, like level one, level two, level three, or ABC level. And each one will be a little nicer with nicer finishes. And they can just tell their contractor, this is an A-level house, like put A-level material in it. And maybe that's the best, right? Because I'm just trying to logically what people do, right? A, B, and C. So A is like nice neighborhoods, top, top end. Like you really have to have wow factor. The people buying are very sophisticated. They understand and appreciate nicer materials. And so that's A level, B level, and C level, depending on where you're going to be doing the flip. Uh, it's probably going to be a lot of work up front. You're going to want to make the lists of like SKUs and things of what you want for, for everything that you're going to do, all the finishes in the house, cabinets and everything, right? Like molding, paint, floors, like what are you going to use? And then you can just give them that package and say, this is an A package or this is a B package. And it makes it a lot easier. And that's how typically how you, you want to communicate your vision. What you want to be careful of, and I, I don't know your business, Gabriel. I don't know you. I don't know your background, but when you use the word vision, I, I, I want to caution you a little bit. When you're flipping houses, the idea is to make as much money as possible and, and, and produce a nice product, right? You want both. What sometimes people do is they cast their vision onto the house and it becomes a house that's custom remodeled or custom rehabbed for what they personally like. And you start adding a lot of personality to it, like color choices that are personal to you and just different things that, that you love and you would want in your house. But the idea is not to rehab a house that you want to live in. It's to rehab a house that the majority of people would want to live in. So putting real specific accent colors and real specific and like kind of like unique and, and very, you know, artsy approach to certain materials and cabinets and, you know, counters and things like this, it, you may love it. And there might be the person out there that agrees with you and loves it or, or a certain amount of people, but you don't want to alienate 80% of the people to try to find those one or two people that see your vision and love it. Now I'm picking on the word vision because I, when I hear that, I, I think of someone who goes in and they want to like recreate the wheel on every single flip is like totally different. And I'm not suggesting that it should be this assembly line of like generic, plain, boring renovations. I'm not saying that. 
but be careful that you're not putting so much personality into it and vision that you're alienating a good chunk of your buyer base. Because at the end of the day, if you, if you flip a house and you say, the house is beautiful, but I would have put a bold, like red accent wall here. Like that's what I would want. Don't do it. Resist that urge because a lot of people will go into a house and go, I hate that wall. And it taints their attitude as they walk through the house. And some people can't see past color. They, and, and I don't like, <laughs> some people can't see past color, right? They look at a wall and it's red and it, they go, Ugh, I, I hate it. This house is, is ugly. And it's like one wall that, that could easily be painted or the flooring, which isn't easy to change, right? You, you go with some very unique flooring pattern or something and you could alienate a ton of people. So be careful, right? have certain standardized materials that you use. Um, doesn't mean your houses can't have a signature feel to them. And like maybe some things that you do, that's like a really uh, a step above what is expected just to kind of set yourself apart. Totally cool. But standard materials, go and make those material lists, spend that time up front so you can give them to the GCs. And that way too, they're all quoting apples to apples. Sometimes you bring two or three or four GCs in a project and they have them quote it. And they have a different idea of the level of materials that you might want if it's not communicated properly. And the, the quotes come back vastly different. And you may hire the person that's cheaper, right? But their materials that they were quoting are much lower than what you would have wanted. So yeah, you, you sort of answer your question a little bit. I would give them a list of materials and I would even go so far as to have that A, B, and C level that you can communicate to someone. So if you're buying a house and like, you know, like a B or a C neighborhood, you can say, use the C-level material materials here. Because in a lot of neighborhoods, and I tell people this all the time, new is all that matters. The quality of the material in some areas, in some houses, in some neighborhoods, the quality has very little impact on the price you can get, number one. And number two, it has very little impact on the, the buying decision. New will have more of an impact than expensive. And so putting new materials in a house, even at like a C-level house, putting new materials is super important. Putting high-end, high-cost materials in that same house, two things. The buyers are likely not going to appreciate that level of expense. And number two, every neighborhood sort of has a level that that it'll go price-wise and it won't go much higher than that. So you can put the Taj Mahal in a, in a war zone neighborhood in a, you know, I live around uh, Detroit, right? I'm, I'm Northwest of Detroit by about an hour. But if I go into Detroit, there are neighborhoods that it doesn't matter what house is on it. It's never going to sell for more than a certain amount because there's a lot of crime. There's a lot of stuff going on and you just, you can't ask for more than that. Or you go in a neighborhood where there's you know, there's a lot of neighborhoods in Michigan and around the country, but there's a lot of subdivisions that have, you know, a thousand houses, 3000 houses, and all of them, all of them are selling for somewhere between 150 and $200,000. And so you can't go in and rehab a house and ask $450,000. The, the highest, you know, the highest selling house is $200,000. You're not going to get 450. It doesn't matter what you do to it or how big it is or how nice it is. It won't sell for that. So you have to look at the neighborhood and make sure that you match and, and exceed a little bit, a little bit, the quality that you see in the other houses so that you stand out, but exceeding it by 10% is just as good as exceeding it by 300% 
because 300%, you'll never get your money back in that neighborhood and people won't appreciate or care. So you want to exceed by 10 or 15% so that people go into 10 houses that day, open houses or whatever. And they look and they come in years ago. Wow. This one's nicer. It's nicer than the other ones. It has new cabinets. It has new flooring, right? I can smell the paint. It's all new, like new, 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 not necessarily knowing the brand or, you know, how much it costs. So anyways, long-winded question, but um, that's how I communicate the, what kind of um, level of quality I would want to a, a contractor. Okay. Nick asked, let's see, Nick, if you are a flipper, would you go about finding good wholesalers in your market? 150% yes. Uh, I've told this story quite a few times, so I'll make it very brief. My daughter came to me about two and a half years ago and she said, I want to start flipping houses out of the blue. She came to me. I want to start flipping houses. She works full time. Um, she's a very, very successful social worker. She works in a school and she also has a, a private practice after, after she gets out of the school system and, and doing what she's doing there during the day. She has a private practice at night. She's extremely busy, extremely driven, and she wanted to start flipping houses to you know, build up some cash and have money for other investments. And the one thing I told her was there's a lot, lot of ways you can find deals and you can, you can find houses. Here's what I suggest. Get on every single wholesaler's list in your market. Now, I'm a wholesaler in her market. And I said, get on my list, but get on everybody else's list too. Get on everybody's list in this area. And when they send out a property to their buyer's list, which you'll be on, make an offer on every single house that you want. Now, if it's a house that you wouldn't want for any price because of the location or whatever, don't bid on it. It's fine. Don't, don't, don't submit a bid. But any house that you would want at some price, don't worry about what they're asking. Run your numbers, be disciplined, and make an offer that makes sense for you. The vast majority of them, you're not going to get the house. You may not even get a response. They may totally ignore it because it's a lot lower than what they're asking. But trust me, if you make an offer on every single house that comes into your inbox, you will get deals. Three weeks later, she had three houses under contract. So as a house flipper, the, the best tool in your toolbox for finding deals are wholesalers. I'm a wholesaler. We exist to serve you as a flipper and a landlord. That's all we do. We market for houses. We negotiate the lowest price possible. We market up. We sell it to you. If the price that we sell it to you makes sense in your numbers, when you run your numbers, renovations, holding costs, cost of money, all that stuff, if what I'm asking works and it makes sense and it fits your model and you buy it, everyone's happy, right? So wholesalers wouldn't exist if there weren't landlords and house flippers. We have nobody to sell a house to, right? So yes, emphatically, 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 yes. That would be the first thing that I do as a house flipper. I would, I would treat finding all of the, and I wouldn't just look for one or two or three. I would treat finding wholesalers in my market like the most important thing in my life when it comes to business. That's what I would spend all my time doing. I would get on every list. I don't care how new the person was. And frankly, new wholesalers are probably one of your best sources of deals and leads as a house flipper because a new wholesaler, and this sounds bad, but listen, I'm just being honest with you. This is business. A new wholesaler oftentimes doesn't know what they have. And sometimes they'll ask way too much for a house because they have no idea what they have and they're taking a guess. Sometimes they don't know what they have 
And they ask way too little for the house that they have under contract because they could get a lot more, but they don't know it, right? And so buying houses from newer wholesalers can be very, very profitable. Buying houses from existing and very experienced wholesalers like me can still be very, very great. Because again, as long as what you pay for that house makes sense in your, in your numbers, then everyone's happy and it's great. So wholesalers, man, that, that would be my number one objective is to get on all the wholesalers lists. And I would try to meet with them too. Um, I, I usually recommend to wholesalers, like if I'm coaching somebody who's a wholesaler, I would say, don't waste a lot of time meeting with buyers because it doesn't necessarily benefit you. You would think intuitively that relationship is really, really important, but it's not necessarily that important for the wholesaler. I want people to buy my houses. And guess what? If I sell those houses at the right price, people will buy them. The buyers though, you as the buyer, right? The, the house flipper, you do want to get in front of the wholesalers and get to know them and become friends because sometimes human emotions, friendships, like if you, if you like, if I'm a flipper and you're a wholesaler and you just like me, we get along, we go out to lunch and, and it's great. Your judgment can get a little clouded on who you want to sell a house to because you like me and I'm offering you 150 and this other guy offered you 155 but he's a jerk and you like me, like I might get that house, right? Just because of our relationship. That's specifically why I tell my dispositions guy to don't spend lots of time meeting up with buyers because friendships, it starts to get a little bit weird, right? When you're making decisions about business, sometimes that gets in the way. So um, it's, it's counterintuitive. Probably nobody else you'll listen to ever will tell you as a wholesaler to not go out and meet your buyers. I just, I think it benefits the buyer. And I think if you're a buyer, you should try to do that. If you're a wholesaler, it doesn't really give you that much benefit in my opinion. Okay, thanks Nick for that. I appreciate it. Um, uh, let's see, how would how would you go about? Okay, so I just got clarification. Um, I just answered for 15 minutes, the wrong question, but I think it could be helpful for some people to understand. How would you go about it? Um, Number one, uh, the, the best way to, to find good wholesalers is really to go out and, and go to RIAs, go to meetups, meet with people in person. Um, but you can only find so many doing that. But that's a good place to go and find who are the wholesalers that are actually finding a lot of deals. Um, so I would go to all the RIAs in your market. I would go to all the meetups in your market and go to like meetup.com, literally look for real estate groups that are meeting and, and try to go and meet up with those people in person. The other way to do it is... Um, you can a couple of things. You can uh, go to like bigger pockets. Bigger pockets, you can search for wholesalers in your market. I don't know if you have to be like at a certain level of membership. I can't remember, but I know you can go in there and search for wholesale. Like for me, I can search wholesalers in Michigan and it'll give me like a list of people that are wholesalers in Michigan. And I would reach out to them individually and say, Hey, I want to get on your list. How can I, how can I do that? Or can we meet up? Like that's how I would go about it. Also, um, uh, you want to make sure that you're talking to the other house flippers in your market and find out where they're finding deals. They may or may not want to tell you, but I would get to network with the other house flippers because they know, you know, they know the good wholesalers, they know where they're finding deals. And if they have an abundance and sort of a growth mindset, they'll tell you if they don't, maybe they won't, but that's how I would go about it. 
Um, oh, and other, also Facebook groups. So that's, I told my daughter this too, when she asked me about it. So I said, get on the Facebook groups. I told her about bigger pockets. I told her about going to the RIAs, but also there is a, a large, and I'm sure in most cities, the same way, a large Facebook group that's, um, real estate investor Facebook group. And in that group in ours, there's actually a spreadsheet that lists all of the wholesalers, like anybody in that group who wants to be found and all wholesalers want to be found, right? We want to find as many buyers and put them on our list as we can. And so there's a, a spreadsheet with all of the wholesalers in our market. And she just went down and like add them all, added them all to uh, her email list and started emailing them and saying, Hey, I want to be on your list. How do I do it? So that's, those are the ways I would go about it. Sorry about that, Zach. I really misread the question and it got clarified for me by, uh, Angela in the background in the background here. Okay. Uh, let's see. Zach uh, said, I am going to talk to a private money lender. What are some tips? Um, number one, realize you're, you're doing them a favor. Um, it's not like, don't, don't go in there with this desperate, you know, I hope that they lend money to me. I hope they do me a favor. You know, I really need the money bad. Like all of those desperate thoughts sort of seep through and, and become very evident when you're talking to somebody. I would start by asking them, number one, like, what, what are you doing now with that? Like, what, where's that money being invested now? And how is that working out? Let them talk a little bit. Again, some people are, you know, play it close to the best. Some people just start spewing all the things they hate about their, their investments they have right now. But two things that I can say above all else. Number one, make sure that you don't, go in there desperate for money. Like you need to be okay with walking away from that meeting without getting any money. Um, but I would say too, is sometimes a really good suggestion and a really effective way of, of meeting with investors is to say, Hey, I'm, I'm raising money. I'm in the process of doing that. Maybe they, I don't, I don't know if, what, how this was set up, like what the conversation was to get this meeting set up. Uh, if they know they're being pitched, that's fine. But if they really don't, if you're just meeting with someone and you're, you, you plan on asking them about private money, but they don't know that, is go into that meeting and, and really make it more of like a, hey, I am in the process of raising money for my real estate business. And I plan on pitching people and, and reaching out to people and, and seeing if it's something that makes sense for them. Uh, I would like to tell you how I plan on doing that. And I would love your feedback. I, you know, I would just love to hear what you think about what I plan on telling people. And in that way, it's very disarming because they don't feel like they're being asked for money as much as they feel like they're being asked for advice. People are very happy to give advice and they're a little more skittish about giving money. So the old saying is if you ask someone for money, they're going to give you advice. If you ask them for advice, they're more likely to give you money. So I would go into it asking them for advice. The second thing that's super critical, and I just had this conversation recently, so it's fresh in my mind, is as real estate investors and as flippers, we typically can give a, a very high rate of return for money that we borrow. Because I don't know your market, but um, Zach, I don't know what market you're in, but let's just say, for example, you're in a market where you need to borrow $200,000 for the purchase and for the renovation. Like that's the total amount you have to borrow. $200,000, the renovation will be done in 30 to 60 days. You need the money for three or four months, right? Having $200,000 for four months at 15% interest is not that much different than having it at 10% interest. Getting it at 12% interest is not that much different from getting it at 9% interest. We're talking a couple hundred bucks 
when it's all said and done, right? So as investors, we can offer a lot. We can offer a high rate of return to our investors. We can give them 15%. It's not ideal, but it's certainly not going to kill the deal, right? It's still a lot of money to be made at 15% to your investors. But that is a huge red flag to most normal people who are not in the real estate industry. You offer them 15% and they're going to like red flag city. They're going to not probably lend you money because it sounds like a scam. It sounds like you're doing something really risky or you're scamming them or there's something wrong, right? We're all taught as kids. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And you're going to fall under the category of too good to be true. And so what you do is instead of telling them what you can give them, when you're asking them about their current investments, what they're doing with the money now, ask them what would make sense for them. What would make them happy? What would make it a win for them? At what interest rate would it be a win for them? Like what kind of an interest rate would they have to get to be very happy that they did it? And you'll be surprised. Most people will throw out a rate of return or an interest rate that's much lower than what you were willing to give them and what you were you know, prepared to give them. So ask them what they're currently doing ask them how that's going and ask them if you were, if they were to lend money to you, what interest rate would make it very interesting for them and what would make them happy? Most people will not say 15%. Most people will say something between six and 10%, which is a phenomenal interest rate for a flipper who's going to borrow money for three or four or five months. So ask them what they're doing, ask them how it's going, ask them what interest rate would be a win for them and make sure that you go into it. Don't be desperate. Realize there is almost unlimited money out there floating around. And a lot of it wants to be found and would be more than happy to work with you. You don't need this one person. And if you go in there desperate or with you're too of a, much of an aggressive approach to it, they're going to smell that and, and probably not loan you money. So just be careful about that. Okay, guys. Uh, I'm going to call it a wrap for tonight. I really appreciate the questions, by the way. Thanks for jumping in, Nick and Zach and, and uh, who else? Gabriel, thank you for jumping in with your questions. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, I'll be here again next week, 7 o'clock Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, and uh, we'll take your questions again. If you have follow-up questions or uh, you just want to, if you were here and didn't ask questions, jump in next time and ask questions. I want to help you guys. All right. Uh, everybody have a good Thanksgiving, by the way, if you're listening to this, if you're, if you're celebrating Thanksgiving tomorrow, uh, have a great Thanksgiving, be safe, eat a ton. If you're into football, it's an exciting day, right? We have football all day long. I'll be doing that. I'll be eating too much. I have two dinners to eat tomorrow. Uh, one of my parents and one of my in-laws. So it's going to be gluttonous, but, uh, it's the one day of the year that we all, we all agree. It's okay. So, uh, have a great Thanksgiving and we will see you guys next week. All right. I hope you enjoyed that. Remember, I do these Q&As live on Facebook on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. I hope you enjoyed this. Tune in next week for another installment of live Q&As answering your questions. Okay. Until next time.